Once again, things that could have been brought to my attention yesterday! TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. TGIF indeed. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Mance and Mitchell in your ears for the hour, ably assisted as always on a Friday by bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you today? Doing awesome, and I uh, hope my favorite Floridians are doing well. You know, hanging I in really there, I guess. You I guess, say right? That, but, but I know that we're the only Floridians you know, so it's, it's kind of a double edged sword. I mean, how do you know I don't know more? Because uh, I asked you. <laughs> Darn it. It was okay. a long time ago. Ah, hoping you not we remember. Were, <laughs> and we were giving you credit for knowing the name Tom Brady. He's, <laughs> turns out he's going to be a Floridian for at least another year. We thought he was moving out of town, but I guess he has unfinished business. That's true. And the guy that bought the last touchdown, did you hear yes. about it? it I guess it's no, no longer like you get your money back on something like that. I mean, is there a return policy? I mean, that's going to be found one day in the bargain bin yeah, in the right. basement of a department store. I think that's what's going to happen. It's going to be at the Goodwill. Or, hey, look at this. I, I better update it to the 21st century. It'll right. be on eBay. Yeah, exactly. Right. Look at that. There we go. Well, today we are going to talk to our favorite shining star of the punditry firmament. We're talking about, of course, Professor Dr. Caroline Heldman from Occidental College, uh, extraordinary lady. She is very gracious in giving to us and our listeners her time once in a while when we can schedule her. She's a very busy lady. Why don't I go ahead and do the mad props and then we'll jump into what will be a multifaceted conversation, I'm quite sure. Yes, sir. Go Excellent. For it. Dr. Caroline Heldman is the executive director of the Representation Project and chair of the Critical Theory and Social Justice Department at Occidental College in Los Angeles. Her research specializes in a lot of stuff, but in media, the presidency, and most tellingly, systems of power. Dr. Heldman has published six books. She may be up to seven or eight by now. This is as of April 21, 2020. There's always more to add, that's for sure. But among her titles, Protest Politics in the Marketplace, Consumer Activism in the Corporate Age, a copy of which we proudly own. Women, Power, and Politics, the Fight for Gender Equality in the United States, which I understand continues. And Madam President, Gender and Politics on the Road to the White House, which will factor into our discussion today as well. So we say hello for the umpteenth time to our delight, Dr. Caroline Heldman. Caroline, welcome once again. Yay, hello. How are you, Gary? How are you, Suzanne? We are doing well, and before we got on the air with you, we were catching the news with the current president bringing on the most recent Supreme Court justice, who yeah. I guess is going to start uh, next term, not not right after the not tomorrow. Justice right, right, right. So that was the first thing that uh, caught our eyes today, in addition to the war in Ukraine, and um, and so talking about systems of power. We wanted to ask you what kind of system is going to produce our first black Supreme Court justice? Female justice. Female. 
Well, and it is fascinating to see how elections matter, right? Ketanji Brown-Jackson uh, was part of a pledge that Biden had made to appoint a Black woman to the Supreme Court. Yes. Um, and, and here we are. Uh, and I think what was really telling for me is uh, having not only this, this pledge made early on, uh, but Vice President Kamala Harris, the first uh, woman to be in that office, uh, and a woman of color, a black woman, and um, a South Asian woman who announced Katanji Brown Jackson's uh, confirmation. And so, historic moment for sure. Um, I thought that uh, the way that Katanji Brown Jackson was treated during the confirmation process. Uh, reflected a lot of what we already knew. So researchers have looked at how confirmation hearings go. Mm -hmm. And if you're a person of color, and if you're a woman, uh, two patterns emerge. So essentially, if you're not a white dude who's before the Senate, uh, you're going to be interrupted more often. Your competency is going to be challenged. Your record is going to be challenged, perhaps in ways that are unfair. We saw all of these trends in this hearing. And so I think you know, oftentimes when we're looking for racism or sexism, or in the case of Katanji Brown Jackson, what I think is misogynoir, which is specifically sexism and racism aimed at Black women, um, we look for obvious signs. But in, in this case, it just fits a broader pattern where she wasn't treated as well as a white man would have been sitting before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Gary and I were enraged watching those questions, and there were times where we just had to either mute the TV or walk away and center ourselves once more because I thought she was treated horrifically, and yet, you know, she didn't break down and cry like Brett Kavanaugh did until Cory Booker came on and gave her like one of the best speeches I've ever heard in my life uh, at, a, at one of those hearings and brought me to tears. How wonderful. Cory Booker definitely put, you know, a bow on the moment. It, this is an historic moment. It's a huge moment. Um, it, it's also a moment that brings me back again to the alternative reality of what the Supreme Court would be for the next three decades if it were a legitimate court. And it's not a legitimate court because Merrick Garland wasn't, wasn't considered. So the rules were bent and the court doesn't look the way that it should. So the court should actually be, uh, you know, the conservatives having a majority with Justice Roberts being the swing vote, but that's not the case. Instead, we are going to have three decades of the Supreme Court being wildly out of step with public opinion on social issues, on environmental issues, on political and economic issues. And I mean, just looking at gaps in public opinion of polling about where the public lies in terms of wanting to address the climate crisis, for example, where the public lies in terms of abortion, we could go on and on, and where the court lies. And so we're in a new era that we've never been in with the Supreme Court because of that stolen Supreme Court seat um, in the last year of President Obama's presidency. And there's not a whole heck of a lot we can do, but it's, it's a sign that We've had a major blow to our democracy, and there was no backstop. There was no accountability for that, which is a scary place to be, especially considering what the next three decades is going to look like for the court. Well, two things about that, Caroline. One is that um, um, the Supreme Court has really fallen tremendously in the eyes of the public as far as being um, fair 
and unbiased. They are no longer considered that way at all. They're looking, the, the public looks at them as another political arm. So they, they're definitely tarnished tremendously. And the other thing is, um, while for all appearances, and if you look at the uh, statistics, it would seem as though it's going to take that long to get things turned around, except for unexpected events. And it was unexpected to hear about Clarence Thomas being in the hospital with the flu. And, and I said, oh my gosh, you know, if, if something goes awry there, we could be looking at yet another person being, um, you know, brought into the Supreme Court rather quickly. So for those kinds of events, you don't really know if someone gets sick or injured, then you could, it might not take 30 years. But given the normal statistics and normal lifespans, there are some pretty young conservative people on there. And it is, it's pretty scary to think that the pendulum is going in that direction that hard. Yeah, that's a great point, Suzanne. Um, although even if um, an opening were to occur in the court in the next couple of years while Biden is still in office, it's likely um, or possible that the Senate will flip Republican and then once again will be into the territory of rule breaking. Um, this whole kind of burn it down partisan approach of putting party over country means that the Senate is not necessarily operating by the rules that it should. Um, so I would anticipate that, that if that happens in the next couple of years, we'll see another Merrick Garland, Garland situation. Mm. And initiated by the same prime mover as did it the first time there. So um, that's what we are looking at. That's the political landscape. And there are so many places where you can stop and or fly over it all and take the bird's eye view. But there's so many issues that speak to the culture wars, also the propriety within government structure itself in what is supposed to be the greatest democracy on earth. We tout ourselves as Americans that way. Don't always live up to it. And in one case in particular, I find myself very curious about those gray areas involving the Supreme Court and the wife of a Supreme Court justice, her keen interest in seeing Donald Trump return to office for a second term, despite the inconvenience of his having lost the election, but that wouldn't stand in her way. That Justice um, Clarence Thomas and now his wife, Ginny, what, in your opinion, Professor Heldman, does that represent in terms of conflict of interest and the responsibility of the high court to maintain its own stature as a pristine, ultimate seat of jurisprudence? Well, great question, Gary. There's a reason the Supreme Court has a 40% approval rating right now, as Suzanne pointed out earlier. It's now seen as a politicized institution because it is unusually so. It's always been a political institution, um, but now it, it, the politicization is on, on steroids. It's an obvious conflict of interest to have Jenny Thomas marching on January 6th, lobbying um, Trump's inner circle, having access to and lobbying Trump's inner circle, and then having her spouse rule on cases involving that or anything around uh, the Trump administration for that matter. But certainly, you know, you notice the case where, where Clarence Thomas um, breaks and doesn't, he's the only one on the court who doesn't want the January 6th documents released from the archives, Trump's documents. So uh, I, I think that's probably why he ruled that way. We won't know for sure, but the thing is, you can't know for sure, so that's why you recuse yourself. But there are no laws against this. There's no, so what's happening is 
is um, new powers are getting into our government that are um, defying norms and traditions that have held our fragile democracy together for 250 years. We're starting to really understand the fragility of that. And as so Mitch McConnell is deciding he's not going to appoint a Supreme Court justice or, you know, Clarence Thomas having this obvious conflict of interest and there are no mecha mechanisms of accountability. So it is really clear that we need these moving forward. Uh, but if the folks in power are the ones who are bending the rules, then it's unlikely to happen anytime soon. A couple of things about that. Um, one is I was hearing during the last couple of days that there is some legislation about how people in Congress cannot hold stocks. And I thought, yeah, well, we'll see if that comes about or not because of, of the uh, perception that they are have inside information and they are buying and selling stocks based on the legislation that they're passing or the things that they know about, very much akin to insider training, uh, trading. And, and so this idea of, of this fragile democracy, is there anything that we can do? If they're talking about limiting stock trading, is that a joke that you think that will never happen? Or is it possible that we will make little inroads for accountability? I would love for that to pass. I doubt that it will. Um, even though Nancy Pelosi, who's probably benefited from information, um, is in support of it and they control the House, I doubt it would get through the Senate. I think um, in particular, Joe Manchin, um, who benefits tremendously from his ties to the coal industry and energy um, information. I think that, that there would be some Democrats who would uh, oppose it. Uh, and in fact, there would probably be many Democrats in the House too who would oppose it because it does benefit them. And, you know, it, as much as we're talking about kind of this new phase or threat to democracy, we have long only had a democracy that is as, as good as corporate money can buy. We, we have had, you know, a hundred years of uh, corporate influence in our democracy where uh, members of, you know, our, our, of Congress and the president and all levels of government and all branches of government have been influenced by the fact that they need corporate money in order to win elections. And so um, study after study either finds a direct or indirect influence um, and that after a while, you know, members of Congress in particular uh, don't even need direct lobbying. They will make decisions that benefit certain corporate constituents over their the constituents in their district, um, and the money will flow into the coffers. So um, yeah, that's long been a problem, and it's not one we're going to fix anytime soon because there isn't a will to do that. And in fact, the Citizens United case was really the nail in the coffin of efforts yes. to get corporate money out of politics. Interestingly enough, when our uh, oil barons were questioned this week about, uh, you know, releasing enough oil and creating enough oil to bring down the prices rather than uh, buying back their stock to raise the prices, they went, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. And, and it's like, screw you. We're doing <laughs> what we want. We're greedy. And so that's it. So they, they have no desire to you know, help the American people with the price of gasoline, and so I jump up and down and I scream, "Electric cars, electric cars!" You know, like just stop buying gas, just stop. Well, and consumers do have more power in this probably than than the federal government, right? As you're pointing out, Suzanne, they don't corporations 
don't actually have to, they're, they're not regulated in that sense. So not only do we not have good regulations on corporate influence of government, um, we don't have good regulations on corporations, period, because they're constantly putting profits above people. And in fact, while it's not legally codified into law, there is an imperative that they're going to serve their, their shareholders, right, if they're a publicly traded company, um, over consumers. But when now we're looking at you know the international crisis, um, when we're talking about energy, we're talking about stability, we're talking about democracy, uh, we're talking about you know the national security, the way in which I would define it, which is that people have enough food to eat and and fuel to keep warm and to move places. Um, corporations have an an outsized role in shaping our lives in a way that the government is not acting as a backstop and I argue in general um, but certainly you know citizens can rise up and kind of put pressure on corporations at specific moments um, but right now with the gas prices they're making historic profits historic profits and yet um, you know they're and they're driving up inflation and if you remember the time frame here we're talking about um, you know a, a lot of the blame for inflation and gas prices is being put on what's happening with the the global oil market right um, as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine but they started jacking up gas prices months before this was even on the national radar I'm mean, certainly it was on the the radar of the uh, foreign service and uh, you know diplomats but it wasn't on the public's radar it wasn't a thing yet and they were already jacking up prices. Yes, they were. And the thing that I point out from time to time when I get the chance is this, this idea of bringing the oil down through the Alaska pipeline. Um, as far as I know, and I've read, is that, that when that oil goes through the United States, wreaking all kinds of havoc and gets to the Gulf of Mexico, what they're doing is refining it and shipping it to other countries. And it does not benefit the United States in any way. So yeah. there's, there's no point in, in putting that pipeline together. Well, right. And, the, and many of the pipelines that have been proposed in recent years, the Keystone that was killed. Um, I, this is part of a, a broader, you know, it's 50 years of big oil lobbying to make sure their interests are protected. Um, public policy is established by the government making decisions and also by the government not making decisions, right? So failing to act on a problem like the climate crisis, which federal officials recognized in the late 70s, we had really good data on in the early 90s, a big driver behind not developing alternative fuels uh, was big oil lobbying Congress to make sure that didn't happen. And I'm simplifying things, but there are scores of books that can document this history. Um, but by and large, everyday Americans don't know how much big oil has lobbied to make sure uh, that they are the, the big energy, uh, you know, that, that we're all using gasoline. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, we, we could be on, we could have been on a very different trajectory had big oil not lobbied and had our, our, our leaders, our elected leaders not capitulated to corporate interests. And as you pointed out in the book that Gary and I read, uh, people can influence the marketplace by um, the consumers themselves making decisions to boycott or support something. You can support electric cars, you can support that, or you can boycott and try to drive less and use less gas. There you know, are ways that you can go both pro and con to actually influence that outcome. And we don't think we have any power at all. And, it, and the truth is because 
we're not talking, we're talking quantity of people. Yes, we do have that power and we don't know it. We absolutely do. And it's especially important that the government provide an infrastructure for alternative fuels. So if we're going to move to electric cars, which is a great interim stop, um, certainly will help with, uh, you know, the release of greenhouse gases. Uh, If we're going to move to that, then we need a massive investment in infrastructure and the Biden administration and the Congress uh, have passed this. And so in the next couple of years, I think we are going to see um, a big shift to electric. And what what chaps my hide is that the folks who are going to make big money off of this are big oil because they're just right. working with the market now that they absolutely have to now that we're, you know, half a century into a climate crisis that we've known about. Right. Exactly so. And I have felt for years that when big oil gets involved, for weal or woe, it's going to be important that they buy into the the emerging industry worldwide because sooner or later, we're going to run out of dinosaurs and they seem to be getting more and more expensive. There needs to be that cost alternative. And yet also, I would point out that at this moment anyway, it's still for most people rather a luxury to have an electric vehicle of anything above a golf cart, I suppose. There, we need to get the cost of those down. And as President Biden has talked about, particularly, where are you going to get your fuel? You need to have charging stations just about everywhere of the sorts, Caroline, that Suzanne and I saw, much to our surprise, we don't yet have an electric vehicle, but nevertheless, we went to a rest area in Wyoming, There, and there were several of them, new facilities set up for people going across this broad expanse of the West, the Intermountain West, and we thought, you can do this. If Wyoming can do this, the United States of America entirely can do this. Amen, Gary. And I, I'll just recommend a really great documentary from forever ago. Uh, I think it was 2005 or six called uh, Who Killed the Electric Car? And it documents the story of GM killing its own car because uh, what they discovered is that the maintenance fees, uh, maintenance costs, the revenue they could generate um, was almost non-existent. And so it, was, it would have competed and cannibalized their profits from you know um, gasoline vehicles, and so not only have they you know the, the big uh, auto companies and big oil been lobbying to maintain this system, they even killed their own innovation in this arena. Wow, who's making the money? And people that have a lot of money want to keep it, and if they can get yours too, they consider it a good day. That's if it's a cynical point of view, it's also one that ties into economic practices of the sort that you may not necessarily get. And you've got a business management degree to begin with from Washington State University. I wonder sometimes, Caroline, when they're they're taking you into the dismal science, as it's called, they're in all of the intricacies, all of the nuance. Do they ever get to the point where they tell you that, for example, If you're going to negotiate like some folks, and I want to say, somebody correct me if I'm wrong, that these academic experts weighed in on how to negotiate with Enron back in the day, and somebody wiser even than the the faculty members told them, you guys don't get it. You are dealing with people who will run roughshod over you because you're taking an academic approach to a business world or a sector of the business world in which the only lines that matter are the ones on which you sign on that dotted line. Well, Gary, you're asking me to to dime out my profession, which I, I 
frankly, I'm very happy to do. I've always had my foot in corporate America and the nonprofit sector and activism, um, you know, one foot out and then one foot in academia. Um, I am constantly unimpressed uh, by, you know, the fact that the entire academic model is set up so that uh, it is pretty uh, difficult for everyday Americans to access, that it's mostly a conversation that's happening amongst elites. Um, and in fact, if you are deemed a public intellectual, you're actually seen as a lightweight. So, um, you know, I, you know, it might be the bleach blonde hair. Um, it might be because I'm a public intellectual. Um, but, uh, you know, th this idea that somebody who's like well published and, and, you know, good at what she does um, isn't actually considered, um, doesn't get the same merit that you would get in other circles. And I'm not playing my little violin, just pointing out the fact that academia runs on rules um, and runs on incentives uh, that, that are unimpressive. I think most academics, if they, if they had to work a day in the corporate sector, um, would they probably get fired? <laughs> not, and I say this because, you know, the work that we do and the way that we do it, um, it, it we, we have incentives that minimize its impact. Um, and so you have a lot of people who are talking, I'm repeating myself, but talking to each other instead of taking this research, translating it for a general audience or policymakers or advocates, and then getting it into the world and making change based upon that information. Um, it, it's not only, you know, a, something that isn't incentivized, um, it's looked down upon if that is your project. Boy, you know, Caroline, you just said something magnificently incredible, and I, I haven't heard it put exactly like that before, but, you know, I really do get that there are some very, very smart people who have their eye on the ball, but they can't get that information out there in order to make a difference effectively because they're in a different reality. And, and those realities don't really mesh all that well. And I have never heard it put quite that way, but now that you've said it, I, I, it's resonating with me and I'm going, yes, yes, yes. When I read an article or I hear something on the news or, or you know, read a book and, and I will say, wow, that is, that's really important but it doesn't go anywhere. You know, these things need to go places, you know, like the, the silent spring book when it came out and people are, you know, looking at water issues. I mean, that kind of thing needs to, needs to happen. You need that bridge into action uh, from knowing into action. And that's, that's very interesting. How do you, how do you get across that bridge? It's maddening to think of all of the information that people have dedicated their lives to learning and generating that doesn't get out to the general public. Um, and it, it's, it's simply because the incentives aren't there, right? There isn't a communication network to make that happen. Uh, if you think about punditry, right, it's, I mean, this is a, a really fantastic, I just love your show, right? Because we can have a real conversation about something. It can be nuanced. It doesn't have to be partisan. But if you're on a, if I'm on a channel that's reaching a really broad audience, it's probably to do combat in sound bites, which doesn't do that work. Um, and then we also end up doing something strange where um, we end up, just kind of leveling expertise 
the way in which we, we set up punditry, the way in which we set up intellectual knowledge. So we pop a professor up who spent you know three decades studying something and who's probably toiled away seven days a week, you know, 10, 15 hours a day uh, for the better part of a decade to get a degree to study something. And, you know, it does make a difference. You learn you know, your brain does all sorts of weird little expansions and goes in all different directions. And it's a little painful. You know, it's like um, folks who explain a PhD, it's like, uh, you know, going into the matrix and taking the pill. You can't really understand the sort of intellectual um, gymnastics and, and work that you have to put in to do that. Um, all of this is matched up against you know, 28 year old blogger or TikTok, you know, and it's so there's all sorts of, of, I think, things happening in our culture that mediate against good information, getting to quote unquote, the masses. You know, we're going to talk about good information, getting to the masses, bad information, getting to the masses, fake information, getting to the masses, and more about systems of power and democracy after we take our bottom of the hour break. So stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Manson Mitchell, and we will be right back. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Caroline Heldman, professor of politics specializing in systems of power, to talk about the crossroads the world is at now between democracy and autocracy. On Saturday, Joey Medea walks on the wild side with his research into legends of the werewolf in books, movies, and other lore. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 11. Seattle, Tacoma, Antwerp? That's right. We're streamed worldwide on our app and on the web at 1150kknw.com. 
what is that alice in chains or something yeah it is there we go that's Hope some like heavy that. rock and music they're pounding me <laughs> absolutely Welcome. you know what i think would be great is if you could get you know those that were great guys and they really put that out there but it'd be great if you could get like a, a bunch of women to have like a girl group where they do those songs and whatnot i think that would be really cool that would be fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> you know we're gonna be at the whiskey later this month so oh wow where is that uh, the Whiskey A Go-Go on the Sunset oh, okay. Strips. We're playing, uh, yeah, Allison Chains, if you go to our, I actually, you would think I would know the date, but we're definitely at the Whiskey later on this month. So Allison Very Chains. good. Among many other groups, you could go there back in the day and see Jim Morrison and the Doors. Oh, yes. Incredible place. Well, congratulations. That's wonderful. Caroline, if people want to find out more about your books or website or, you know, what you're up to as a professor, what's the best place for them to do that? Ah, so drcarolineheldman.com. Uh, you know, somebody took my actual name, so I had to add my professional title because I refused to pay them for my name. Um, and then I met Caroline Heldman on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and also TikTok, although I'm just a lurker there. Okay. Oh. Very good. Caroline Heldman. So Dr. Caroline Heldman. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> Make sure you got the DR in there. Absolutely. Well, you know, I want to be a gentleman about this. I'm trying to make a point about pollsters and spin there. And I was going to put it in historical context, but I don't out anybody's birthday unless they're okay with it. You just want to keep that off to the side. I can make a more general reference. There doesn't bother you. There we go. Well, let me just say this, everybody. <laughs> Where is this going? Hopefully to someplace fun. Caroline Heldman, I discovered just this morning, after asking the question and then the internet answered it almost instantaneously, I will rate that as a synchronicity. Caroline Heldman was born 12 days after Richard Nixon was reelected president of the United States. That much I was able to do the math. Okay, what's interesting about that is, and the reason why I bring that up at this late date is, you know, 50 years ago, we're looking at a situation where polling itself, Carolina, you know more than a little about this, political and presidential election pollsters became shadow superstars. I don't know if it happened before a guy like Patrick Cadell or not, but he's the first one of whom I became seriously aware before I cast my first vote proudly for Nixon and Agnew in 1972 as I grew up in Fullerton, California in the heart of Orange County. They're seven miles from Disneyland and I voted me some Nixon. And there are good or bad things to be said about that, all things considered. It's a, Richard Nixon was a very complex man. Here's the thing, and I bring this up now to you, Caroline, because Patrick Cadell was George McGovern's pollster. Now, you talk about a guy who had a challenge to try to put the right spin before that word spin really entered the vernacular there for a campaign that was doomed at the outset. I don't think there's much doubt about that, speaking historically. And yet they pursued the presidency. When I think about Patrick Cadell and I think about other pollsters, and you could name more than me, Caroline, what seems to me is that these guys have become, and maybe always were, rather like hired guns. They take statistics, they take numbers, and they create a matrix out of that. And from it, they seem to derive some avenue of spin in which a given party, a given campaign is trying to sell the rest of America on their brand of reality. That's some heavy, heavy odds. 
uh, in the case of the McGovern campaign, but more typically, you're fighting for a share or dominance in political terms based on what you do with numbers. Uh, and you, that, you've yeah. seen that so much of it. I mean, are there are there superstars of polling who, who really can carry that? A Frank Luntz comes to mind on the other side, you know, some of us would say the dark side, but in the mix of all that, they are dealing with perceptions of reality. That's mm -hmm. a super important responsibility in any democracy, don't you agree? Absolutely, Gary. And, and you mentioned Frank Luntz, Kellyanne Conway was a Republican pollster for many decades. You know, I met Kellyanne, Frank, and certainly Pat Cadell um, as, you know, as, as someone who does political polling as well. And um, it's a huge responsibility. I think what's happening now is perhaps even scarier uh, than what used to happen in terms of simply gathering public opinion information and then sharing that information in order to craft certain messages. Um, what's happening now is uh, information is being gathered by essentially pollsters or, you know, data scientists um, using social media and big data, right? So we saw this with Cambridge Analytica, where they were gathering profiles uh, that would help them convince people of certain realities. And so as much as there's still a man manipulation or use of polling by presidents, by members of Congress, um, at the end of the day, I think the scary thing is probably much more about social media and the campaigns around that. So, for example, uh, the Russians starting really intensely in 2016 and certainly again, uh, you know, throughout the years, it, not, not that they've ever not done it since the advent of social media, but very intensely um, were targeting people in the 2016 and 2020 elections to get them to believe things that are not true. Uh, the targeted campaign, for example, why is it that one in three Americans, you know, and over um, about almost two thirds of Republicans believe the big lie about the 2020 election? That has everything to do with messaging via social media. And much of that is targeted because we've been gathering a lot of data on people and we can now really narrow cast uh, specific messages to certain people who are going to be susceptible to those messages. Caroline, we, we have hit a little gremlin in our audio. I think they don't like what we're talking about right now. We're going to take a quick, very quick one minute break, maybe maybe a minute and a half just so we can go ahead and um, have you, you log, off, log off and log back on again so you don't sound like you're underwater. Thumbs up from Carol. And so thank you, Benny, take it away. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. The Ala La is fantastic. My favorite indie band, by the way, second favorite, second favorite indie band right now. And uh, here we are with Dr. Caroline Heldman. 
in our conversation. We can go about anywhere, and we often do. Caroline, I just wanted to duck this in because Suzanne has a, an even weightier question and one that uh, is certainly all business, very serious. But before we get to that, I thought I would duck this in. Did you have a personal and visceral reaction to the slap heard around the world during the Oscar presentation? There, I'd love to hear how that affected you. And then I have my own take on it and we'll move on. Yes, I mean, I've, I've been reluctant to speak about it because there are some racial dynamics um, at play. And, you know, it's, I'm always conscious about who's speaking and, and who feels they should speak on things. I will say um, empathy for everyone involved. I didn't love our reaction to it as a culture. I'll be really critical of that, but uh, a deep amount of empathy for a Black woman who is experiencing something related to beauty, which is the primary way in which we are valued. And so that was really ugly, um, you know, to to have to have her sitting in the audience hearing that. Um, obvious empathy for Chris Rock. Um, violence is actually not the answer. Uh, and and you know, empathy for the trauma survivor who is Will Smith, uh, who talked about not being able to protect his mother and the history there. So for me, it's a super complex situation, and I, I have empathy for, for all of the people involved. Good answer. Extremely fair-minded. Being, a, I have a, a pragmatic bent, so I'll leave it at this. I was thinking about it after it happened and watching it on the news interminably for days there. And the thought occurred to me that had Will Smith called out what Chris Rock said and which let's, let's be honest, they didn't bring Chris Rock on to tell, you know, family digest little jokes or knock, knock jokes. He's Chris Rock. And he was there being Chris Rock there. So that said, I figure that if Will Smith had called him out, to honor his wife, and she does have alopecia, there needs to be some compassion there. It shouldn't lead to that kind of humor. And to say what he had to say, people would have titervated about it, and they would have tweeted about it. And after a few days, it would have gone away. But to stride up to the state, which seemed like it took forever, and to slap him, and for that to ultimately lead to Chris Rock having to cope with this, even in his public performances now, and for Will Smith, he went from somebody sitting in a seat at the Academy Awards presentation to somebody defending his wife, committing an act of violence, giving an award after he wins Best Actor, Minutes later, after winning that award, he gives a tearful speech because he starts to realize what he'd done. And after about you know a week, two weeks, he's no longer a member of the Academy. And I say to myself, I remember I was sitting at home watching Marlon Brando not be present for his Best Actor Award for The Godfather in 1972. And um, a Native American lady who wanted to speak out against uh, outrages against Native American tribes in America was there in his place to give that very controversial at the time it still reverberates but if I could go back and talk to me back in 72 73 whenever the presentation occurred I would have said oh folks you ain't seen nothing yet you just wait until our society gets to the point where these clashes and the dynamics and the threat of violence and perhaps toxic masculinity Perhaps it's a matter of publicly fighting for the honor of one's spouse, but for it to play out so publicly fits, it seems to me, hand in glove with what we see going on at various rallies. It's in the streets there. You have 
uh, president of the United States for four years who talked like no president before and certainly not like Mr. Biden saying these things to tumultuous tumultuous roars of applause and a willingness of people to go and try to invade the Capitol on his behalf. This is all public performance arts from generated emotion over politics and society. And I ask myself, how in the world did we get here? Well, yeah, toxic masculinity, right? You're the ways in which we define and in fact, box men in uh, to something called the man box, which is Paul Keivel identified this in uh, the mid seventies. Um, being a man means that you're always in control, you're assertive, you're aggressive, and the way in which you enforce that control, um, given this you know, narrow box of masculinity uh, is through violence or the threat of violence. And so when I said that I was really disappointed in how the nation reacted, just not obviously calling that out, um, when you have little boys, little girls, gender nonconforming folks watching this and thinking this is perfectly normal and natural, uh, right, that the conversation wasn't about toxic masculinity is, is the reason I'm really disappointed in the cultural conversation. Thank you for answering that, Caroline. Okay. Your witness, Suzanne. Moving on. <laughs> I, I made a promise to the listeners to cover one particular thing. I think I even put it in writing. And that was the idea of democracy versus autocracy. We have President uh, Zelensky of Ukraine saying, don't think I'm the last one they're coming after because after me, they're coming for you. And so he is uh, holding himself up as the person to um, keep democracy uh, or, or everyone loses it. And, and my, my sense of it is that um, I want to ask you, with regard to your years of study and knowledge about systems of power, do you give democracy better than a 50-50 chance, or do you see us on a road where it's likely to go away? Well, yeah, that's a really interesting question, and it's hard to know where that line is. Some folks would argue, some experts do argue, uh, that we've already lost our democracy because it requires an informed citizenry. And when you have social media that, that's, you know, in the 15 years that it's been around is now being used as a tool of political misinformation and strife, um, that you don't have one of the basic blocks of democracy and informed citizenry. Um, there are others who argue that it's under threat and periled or lost um, because we have uh, one political party that is dedicated to limiting the vote, which is the basis for democracy, and in fact have, um, have led to uh, an imbalance in terms of representation. So the rules that have been uh, rewritten in a lot of states in the past decade have given, um, and it sounds so partisan, but it really is one party doing it. It's, it's given Republicans an advantage in a shifting electorate where they are quickly um, losing their, um, you know, losing their competitiveness. And the reason that they're losing their competitiveness is especially during the Trump years, um, they're doubling down on white ethno-nationalism. Uh, Trump made overt white ethno-nationalist appeals, whether he was talking, you know, labeling people who were migrants coming from Mexico as murderers and rapists and saying that, um, you know, a, a judge who was Latin couldn't decide on cases involving migrants, whether it's the Muslim ban, um, whether it's the way, the degrading ways in which he talks about Black Americans. Um, 
um, he overtly played upon white and ethno-nationalism. And it worked to turn out the vote for a certain part of the electorate. But at the end of the day, we're a country that's going to be uh, majority, minority, probably as soon as 2045. And mm -hmm. so Republicans, instead of, you know, broadening their tent and shifting their policies to yep. include uh, more racial diversity, and I would argue more gender diversity, I think they're shooting themselves in the foot with abortion. That's maybe a, a secondary question. But they've really gone all in um, with, with white voters, right? That's their bread and butter. And at the end of the day, it won't be enough to sustain their party long-term competitively. And they know this, which is why we're seeing all of, you know, the voter ID laws that came about 10 years ago to address a problem that wasn't a problem, but they knew that it would demobilize voters of color and older voters who tended to vote Democratic. And now we're seeing overt violations of the Voting Rights Act, which has been gutted by the Supreme Court. So there are a lot of folks who think that we've already lost our democracy. Um, but there, you know, Suzanne, your question is maybe, you know, a, a bigger question about um you know where are we headed next yeah. yeah wow you know what I, I i don't think i wanted to hear that and i i guess i'm wondering is there any possibility of getting democracy back gary and i talk about the fact that um, a lot of schools don't even have social studies history uh, civics civics course in school i mean we used to get that when we were in grammar school and high school. And, you know, now the courses are really geared toward making money when you get out of school. And so you don't, you're not getting that historical perspective anymore. And, um, I, you know, it just, it concerns me a great deal. Like, is there a way to turn this around? Ah, so Suzanne, I'm, I'm so pessimistic, right, and in my analysis of it, with, with the goal of properly identifying a problem in order to address it, and I think a lot of the reason why folks who are trying to advance social justice, that we don't make much progress is because we're not honest about how deep the roots of some of these problems run. So, for example, you're talking about, you know, history. Uh, we actually baked inequality into our institutions, into our uh, our founding documents. Um, and so it's not a surprise that we haven't moved too far away from that. Um, but I will say I'm optimistic that when a pendulum swings so far in one direction um, that it tends to swing back the other way. And so um, there are a growing number of Americans, um, not a majority, but a growing number of Americans who are concerned about something called quote unquote democracy. And it's a nebulous term and what does it mean and how do you measure it? And you know, 135 political scientists got together a few years ago and they couldn't come up on a, with a, a shared definition. But we all sort of get the sense that it has something to do with the people and being making choices and having um, their interests represented. Uh, and you can, you can look and see the ways in which corporate influence in politics compromises that, the ways in which, you know, not allowing everyone to vote compromises that, manipulating public opinion in ways that serve your, you know, financial or political purposes uh, compromises that. Uh, but more and more people are concerned. Um, and I, I think the outpouring of folks who turned out to vote in the last election is a really good sign um, that maybe, you know, we're not just going to let this happen. We're not going to roll over and let our institutions become uh, blatantly anti-democratic. Thank you for saying that. Great segue. As mentioned early in this broadcast, 
Dr. Caroline Heldman is author of author or co-author of Madam President, Gender and Politics on the Road to the White House, published back in 2020. There, and I bring this book up in particular, Caroline, because come 2024, if Joe Biden decides I've done as much as I can riding in this rodeo and I'm going to hang it up, thus becoming a one-term president. Okay, now it's a free-for-all. It isn't just handed to a successor, right? That wouldn't be democratic politics. <laughs> so in the case of Vice President Kamala Harris, now we've seen what Judge Jackson just went through. I sense that there is an emerging trend of so-called conservative commentators seeking to besmirch Kamala Harris well in advance of any opportunity she would have to get the big job in the Oval Office. It's like they're setting the stage to trash her enough that she wouldn't even consider running. How does it look to you? Absolutely. That right there. Um, I mean, the vice president doesn't have much power. Kamala Harris hasn't done much because guess what? Vice presidents don't have much power, you know, other than like Dick Cheney, who was maybe operating a little shadow government as VP, which um, is its own set of, of issues. Um, but just the fact that she has received so much criticism for, um, you know, just basically the everyday acts of her office uh, speaks volumes to me. And they, the folks are fearful of this, right? Uh, what we will see is uh, the most racist Texas campaign we've ever seen if she were to make it to the general election. It's hard, you know, we don't have a lot of numbers to compare it to, um, but we can look at how Shirley Chisholm was cheated, treated, cheated, <laughs> treated. Uh, we can look at how Carol Mosley-Braun was treated. We can look at how Kamala Harris was treated, um, and even Tulsi Gabbard. These women of color are treated in very specific kind of intersectional racist and sexist ways uh, in public discourse and in media coverage, which of course shapes your legitimacy as a candidate. I recall, and we've only got about 45 seconds, but I recall that Carol Mosley Braun was in an elevator in the Senate and uh, Jesse Helms of North Carolina, notorious Jesse Helms, and a fellow senator entered the same elevator and Jesse Helms turned to his male colleague and said, watch me make her cry. He was intent on disrespecting her so much that a fellow senator would be in tears. I don't know what this muck is there that we keep stepping into, but wow, I wish we could cure ourselves of that evil urge to put down, to humiliate rather than to honor and to work with. Amen. Cara, Caroline Heldman, it's always a joy, not just a pleasure, a joy when you join us on Manson Mitchell. We hope to do it again soon. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Gary and Suzanne and Benny. Go Cougs. Hey, thank you. Go Cougs. All right. We'll thank be back you. tomorrow, 10 a.m. Pacific. We will. And today at one o'clock Pacific time, stay tuned for American Road Trip Talk. We, host, Gary we would be glad to have you along for the ride. Thanks, everybody. And have yourselves a great weekend.